This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. This is the 180th episode of the podcast, 180. Today I'm going to be interacting with some emails and messages I've received from listeners and from readers of Casting Across. As I talked about last week on the podcast and earlier this week on the website, this is one of my favorite things to do. And hopefully these short snippets of conversations that I share on this podcast, which I do every 10 podcasts where I call it my accusations, my fly fishing accusations, questions, comments, and accusations um, can be helpful to you. It's a great way to kind of take a spin off of something I've talked about in a longer form on another podcast or article. It's also a chance to talk about something that might be a little more niche, maybe something that wouldn't warrant a full half an hour podcast or a full article on castingacross.com. But what's interesting I find is that after thinking about my responses to people, which almost always come as a, in a one-to-one manner before they make it onto the podcast, that it usually sends me down a trail of thinking about my answer even more as I'm talking about it, even on the podcast. So today we're going to be talking about three different things. The first thing is going to be about gear storage. And then there is a email I received that asked a question about fishing a particular river in Virginia. And then thirdly, we're talking about barbless hooks. So barbless hooks, River in Virginia, and gear storage. So the very first email comes from Tom, and Tom writes, Hey, Matthew, good show on storing fishing gear. I found that using silica gel packs, aka desiccant pouches, work well. They're reusable, and you often get them free with new shoes and other products. The small ones I'll throw in my real cases and other small pouches or containers. I purchased larger ones from Amazon to keep in my bins for storing camping, fishing, and motorcycle gear. In the bins I store in my tents, I leave a box of Arm & Hammer taped up right that I've pierced some shell holes in. Excuse me, pierced some small holes in. 
Maybe he used a shell to pierce them, but probably not. Keep the good work and have a good weekend. Tom from Massachusetts. Well, Tom, that is a excellent bit of information. Um, everything that you, you mentioned is good. So, you know, what those desiccant pouches are, uh, if, like you said, if you get a pair of shoes or if you get a piece of gear, um, I've, I've found some really big ones and like waders and wading boots. So it, it almost seems like that the larger the product, the either the larger the desiccant pouch or the, um, the, the more quantity of desiccant pouches you get. So I've gone ahead and thrown these in some of my gear bins for the very reason that uh, that Tom mentioned. Uh, it's just a great way to cut down on moisture, and it is also a great way to really eliminate the things that come along with moisture. So he he mentioned uh, camping gear. So you think about your fly fishing gear. Um, chances are during the season you've got your waders, and hopefully you're storing them well. Like I advocated on the podcast uh, a couple of months ago that you hang them up on like a hanger or you, you don't necessarily hang them up using the shoulder straps because if they're elastic at all, then they can stretch out and you're going to have them hanging up year round. But for something big, like a tent, chances are you're not going to leave that tent, uh, hanging up anywhere. You're not going to leave it set up anywhere for too long. You're going to break it down and you're going to put it away. Now, the fact of the matter is no matter how well you dry the thing out, it's still going to have some moisture on it. Probably not always, but probably you think about, um, you go camping in the rain and everything gets completely soaked. And the same thing can be true for your waders, your boots, your rain jacket, whatever it might be, but a tent's a great big example, right? And you come home after that wet camping trip and how fun wet camping trips always are. And what do you do? Once it dries out outside, you set your temp up, tent up in the backyard. And if you sit, leave it set up for any amount of time, what's going to happen? As long as you're not living in an arid climate, moisture from the ground is going to condense on the bottom of that tent. Or if you leave it up overnight, there's going to be some under the rain fly. It's going to be all over the place. And so there's really no perfect time to break the thing down when you're not going to have any moisture at all. So putting in a silica pouch is going to help take care of that. And then the other thing that I was mentioning, again, this is for camping gear, but also for fishing gear. It's not just the moisture. The moisture might go away. Uh, the moisture could be remediated simply with time. But the th concern is, is if there's other organic matter in there, if you've got a little bit of dirt, a little bit of mud, even just a little bit of, of I mean, even like oils from your skin on there, that moisture is going to contribute to mold, mildew, and other nasty stuff that happen. So you are not going to completely eliminate the degradation that happens to uh, everything from metal to, to the surfaces of plastic, certainly to things like uh, furs and feathers that your flies are composed of, uh, paper products, anything and everything that you, you have in your gear, you're not going to eliminate that being damaged in some way, shape, or form as time goes on. But you can really limit it by uh, keeping things out of the sun, keeping things away from moisture, making sure things are clean and dry when you put them away, and then doing something like Tom recommended, uh, something as simple as adding some of those little pouches that come in your, your new shoes, your new uh, wading boots or new waders, or something bigger like a tent. Throw them in there and uh, you will be in good shape. And then he also mentioned uh, baking soda, um, which I think is a, a great idea, uh, especially if something does get use like boots or waders or wading jackets. I've even found... Um, you know, things like leather real uh, pouches 
they they do get a bit of funk going on after a while, especially if they get wet and then don't dry it completely right away, and then they're in that warm environment. So it's a great idea, and I really appreciate you passing on that information, Tom. The next email is from Gary. Gary writes, fishing the Jackson in Virginia above the dam next week. Might you have any fly suggestions? I have drifted into Euronymphing recently, nice pun, and I've had some success. I'm interested in what you might offer regarding dries. And then he says, the second part of the question, which I do want to touch on also, I've been with you for at least a year and you've helped me a lot. I'm still wondering about your thoughts on John Gearock. Robert Traver is my all-time favorite author. I'm a former Uper, so I can relate. Uper being UP, Upper Peninsula of Michigan, where John Volkner, aka Robert Traver, was uh, both a politician and uh, an author and uh, screenplay writer. But anyway, uh, let's take those questions in turn. And thank you for the email, Gary. The first thing is Jackson River. Jackson River, fan- fascinating river. Fantastic and fascinating. I hung up halfway between both of those words in uh, western and southwestern Virginia. It's a tailwater, and it's beautiful. Uh, high yields of fish. If you Google it, you'll see that. But uh, the Jackson River, uh, particularly below the dam, has been the site of great controversy regarding land access and river access, river access in particular, because Virginia, along with some other mid-Atlantic states, still has King's Grant and land right uh, charters that go back before the United States or the United States. And it's a similar issue going on on the Jackson River. I don't have all the info in front of me, can't speak authoritatively on it without putting my foot in my mouth, but it's definitely worth listening to and reading about. There's a couple of good podcasts. I think Rob Snow White has one on the issue, and I'm pretty sure that uh, there's an Orvis podcast with Tom Rosenbauer where he talks to somebody about the issue as well. But I don't have, again, just Google it. You'll find it uh, fascinating, interesting story. Uh, and really, it's it's Maryland, um, Virginia, Pennsylvania. And I want to say there's a couple other states that have run into this issue, uh, maybe New Jersey as well. But obviously, kind of the East Coast, older part of the world, where you run into issues where particular pieces of land with water in them are managed under different regulations because of the charter and the the land rights that are associated with them that go back well before the founding of of the the state uh, or or the government. Anyway, uh, Jackson River. So I gave him a couple of of recommendations for dries, uh, but again, this is seasonal. Uh, I'm recording this in late April, and what I recommend today is not going to be what is going to be good if you're listening to this in May or June or July. Uh, obviously, in the Mid Atlantic, terrestrials are going to be killer for dries. Uh, probably starting right about now, late April, going all the way to early September. So that's going to be your best bet for a river like that without knowing any of the conditions. Um, I would definitely make sure I had little ants um, and uh, beetles and things like that in my box if I was going to fish a river and I want to throw uh, um, dries at all. And then, of course, I would find out what the local fly shop was recommending. If I am not familiar with the river, that is your next best bet for information. Um, I trust that more than I trust message, message boards for the same reason I just said. It's like you want to make sure that, that information is timely and it's up to date. And Virginia has some fantastic fly shops up and down I-81, and uh, they're definitely worth giving a call. But uh, I I have mentioned that same sort of idea to a lot of folks who have recommended 
patterns, particularly when it comes to dry flies. Now, I could all day say just fish your, your classic nymphs, your hairs, your, your prints, your, your wet midges. Uh, those are going to produce well. Gary said that he's being into uh, Euronymphing. And flies like that and some of the more modern flies are going to do great because they just catch fish anywhere and everywhere. Uh, the same thing with streamers. Uh, heavy, bulky streamers that you can bounce along the bottom and under um, stream bank uh, um, overhangs and you're going to catch fish. But as far as dry flies go and what the fish are really keying in on, for that kind of information, you really want to talk to the local fly shop as soon as or as close to your fishing trip as possible. It is virtually impossible with a few exceptions of different rivers around the country to say, oh, this fly always produces all the time. And inevitably, if that is the fly that all of your hopes and dreams of catching fish are pinned on, it's not going to work on the day and the season that you go. It's just the way it works. So uh, happy to give some general suggestions that I think would work in a, in a place like, like wherever you ask if I've fished there before. But again, um, who knows more than me, the people that are on the river all the time who are actually fishing it and have that information. But his second question was, what is your perspective on gear? I've had this question asked to me probably as many, as much as any other book related question that I've had asked. And why haven't I written about John Gearock? Why haven't I reviewed any of Gearock's books on uh, the website or the podcast? And it comes down to this weird hesitancy about things that I'm really familiar with. Um, there's rivers that I have fished, like as many as much as any other river I've fished that I've haven't written about. And part of it is because I've got this like reverence, um, lowercase r reverence for for some of these streams, uh, gear that I fish with that I haven't done like a throwback review on, uh, because it's, it's just like too close. I don't know. I, I feel like I really have to do right by it. And I just, if, if I, if I start it, it's gotta be perfect. And I probably should, you know, skew that and just do something right about one of my favorite gear books. Um, and the fact of the matter is John gear was probably my first entrance into fly fishing writing. I can't remember which title it was in particular, but knowing that I was a teenager at the time, uh, Sex, Death, and Fly Fishing was probably what got me into reading Gearock when I was in the library, and I saw that with that word. I thought, oh my goodness, this is what I'm going to read today. Um, it was either that or even Brook Trout Get the Blues. I mean, all of those books that he he wrote in the 90s um, and then even in the, the mid to late 80s, were books that I devoured in a matter of weeks. Um, I mean, the entire canon of Gearock that was available to me is something that I read uh, so quickly. And I was at a time when I wasn't reading as much because I was in middle school, high school, and you know how things get at that time. When you're being forced to read things that you don't particularly want to read, you don't want to turn around and read something else. At least I I didn't. Um, thankfully, I I got past that. I had a, a just a, a wonderful love of reading as a small child and uh, all through elementary school. I absolutely loved it. So it was kind of this brief um, pause in high school where I just wasn't reading a whole lot with the exception of fly fishing stuff. And Girak and his wonderful uh, method of communication, his great storytelling, his uh, ability to draw you into a story. Uh, and a story that wasn't profound because of the arc of the story, but because of the characters and the introspection that he shared in the story was something that really resonated with me. And uh, I, I really uh, say that, as I said earlier, 
uh, is probably one of the more influential um, periods of like reading for me was reading so much Kirak as, as well as other books. I mean, Robert Traver, for example, like I mentioned earlier, um, I just would sit in the library in Northern Virginia and read, read, read these books and then check out, you know, the next one, take it home, read it, bring it back, be at the library, read another one and then check out another one. So just flew through, um, fishing bamboo, uh, dance with trout, uh, fly fishing, small streams, uh, trout bum, of course, and a couple of those other books that came that were out while I was I was a teenager. So I love John Girak's work, uh, and I can't speak highly enough of it. Uh, where to start if you've not read Girak? Um, Death taxes and leaky waiters is like a, a, a anthology um, that should be pretty accessible. I feel like I've seen that one in every used bookstore I've ever been in. What I would really love to see, and maybe it's happened, um, I, last time I checked, uh, I, I didn't see it, is if there was an edition of each book that was consistent in its binding and its aesthetic. Uh, maybe that makes me like obsessive compulsive or anal or something like that, but I would love to start collecting uh, uh, Gearox works in a way that would be um kind of consistent just because I, th I think they are they're, they're they're easy quick fun airplane vacation reads um but anyway i here's my confession i own zero gear books as many as i've read i don't own any it's all all library fodder which is great and uh, i'm sure he would be okay with that but if you know of that if you know if they are planning on putting them all out i'm sure there's publishing rights and things like that without prohibit it but anyway that's me rambling about johnny gear but anyway thank you gary for the email and uh, hopefully you catch some fish on the Jackson. Third email comes from Kim. And uh, I don't have enough time to really give this a full treatment, but we'll, we'll talk about it for five or six minutes. Kim writes uh, about barbless hooks. Kim says, would love to get your opinion on this. If you use barbed or barbless hooks and when you would use which one if you do. This has been an ongoing issue with my wife and I. She tells me I lose most of my fish because I crush my barbs. I do crush my barbs on double-digit hooks, size 10 and smaller, but I don't on single-digit hooks, size 8 and larger, mainly because I use the smaller hook sizes on trout and the larger sizes on bass and steelhead. Love your podcast. Hope to hear your opinion. Kim. Kim, excellent question. I don't know if I've talked about this, uh, and this is certainly something that could receive a much longer treatment, but I wanted to at least start talking about it because, as I mentioned earlier, inevitably that comes stirs my thinking and, and produces better thoughts that I can put down later in a in a full podcast or an article. Uh, generally speaking, I crush my barbs. Uh, and, and here's the reason why. I have never had a barbless hook or a crushed barb hook that I've struggled to get out of the mouth of a fish. So fish that I've hooked deep, fish that I've really just gotten up in their mouth or up in their face, I'm able to get those out relatively easily, uh, whether it's with a pair of hemostats or with my fingers. And I like being able to do that. But that being said, they're on there nice and hard. Like the fish is still flopping around in my net and the hook isn't coming loose. Whereas when I have used barbed hooks, um, that's the times when the fish is really hung up. And interestingly brought up like bass and panfish. Um, those are the fish where I've noticed like, man, this is really doing some damage on these fish. And we've got this weird, you know, 
valuation of fish A versus fish B, where, you know, in theory, a smallmouth bass in a, in a river in its native range is more valuable from an ecological standpoint than a stock trout in its non-native range. And yet we freak out about people holding stock trout out of the water too long and things like that. Yet we have no problem with people, you know, throwing a bass up on the, on the bank to take a picture. But anyway, that's a conversation for another day. But uh, I've noticed that, you know, barbed hooks on bigger bass flies uh, really do a number on bass um, because that barb is bigger. Now, are those fish resilient? Yes. I mean, they eat crayfish. They eat other fish. They have other sharp things going in their mouth. But if I can help avoid causing more damage to their mouths, uh, particularly with something that's going to get stuck, I might have to torque around. I think we all know that feeling of having to torque a hook around a little bit to try to, to dislodge it, especially if it has that barb that you have to now create a hole that is wide enough to receive the uh, the opposite end of that barb to pull it out. That's not a fun thing to do to a fish, even if it is, quote unquote, just a bass or a panfish. So I pinch my barbs down. Uh, I do it in the salt water, and and part of the reason is when I get to hard mouthed fish, and this might even be the case for steelhead. I, you know, you catch some steelhead and and some salmon where they're just big and gnarly, and they've just especially you know the bigger fish, they've got these big thick, uh, heavy jaws. And the same thing is true for saltwater fish. I feel like I might get a little bit more penetration when it comes to a barbless hook. Is that in my head? Maybe. Is there scientific evidence that backs one side or the other up? I would say yes. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, I think I lose fish because I'm playing them poorly or because I've had a poor hook set rather than the hooks um, being after the hook is penetrated and penetrated well. I don't think that it's the hook sliding out because of the barber knot that's causing me to lose fish. I think it's because of letting there be too much slack in the line, which you shouldn't do regardless if there's a barber knot. Uh, or it's because I didn't set the hook well. So again, if we're talking about a larger predatory fish or a saltwater fish, I trout set the thing and I didn't give it a nice strip set. And that is where I am losing fish. And I can look back on fish that I've lost. And that is generally what I, where I place the blame is my poor hook set and more or my uh, poor fish fighting technique, messing with the line too much, trying to get it on the reel and allowing there to be, um, you know, especially in the saltwater again, um, or even in a, in a fast moving river where that fish moves upstream for, for shelter or for cover. Uh, and I allow there to be slack because I'm trying to get a bigger fish on the reel. That's when I lose those fish. It's not, I don't think because I'm, I'm not getting a good, uh, uh, penetration with a barbless hook. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of insight, but again, I am not going to be dogmatic, especially on some of these smaller, sometimes I have a hook and it looks barbless. And then I get my eye real close to it. And I realize that's not a pinched down barb. That's a barb that has not been pinched down, but it is so incredibly delicate and small, which I think is good. I think it's a good, um, you know, happy medium. I think that uh, if if hook manufacturers were able to make really teeny tiny barbs like you, you do see and make that kind of standard, that'd be kind of a, a good uh, a good compromise for a, a lot of folks. But Anyway, rambling on about that, but thank you, Kim, for the email. I appreciate it. Hopefully you and your wife um, can come to a compromise yourself on how and when you use barbless hooks. If you have questions, if you have comments, if you do have an accusation, do let me know. Matthew at castingacross.com. Some of the folks in this week's uh, podcast reached out to me using the contact form on the website. You're always welcome to do that or reach out through direct message by 
Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Happy to interact with you. Any questions that you might have or comments uh, about something I've said or written or an accusation if you so choose. This week on castingacross.com, the very first article, which came out on Monday, was called Letters to the Fly Fishing Editor. Letters to the Fly Fishing Editor. And that was essentially a recap of some of the bad emails I've gotten. I don't call anybody out, but these are kind of like kinds of emails I've gotten before, kinds of uh, social media chirps that uh, didn't show very good reading comprehension. But then I give some examples of good emails. So if you if if you want to write in, these are examples of things that are good to write about and things that are not great to write about. But I digress. Check it out very, very quick. And there's actually a contact form at the bottom of that article on Casting Across. Wednesday's article is called Prince Nymphs and Cat Stevens. Prince Nymphs and Cat Stevens. This is a rare third-person narrative on castingacross.com. So it is a experience, a fishing experience, but it's written in a little bit of a different way. So hopefully you enjoy that. I enjoy writing things like this. I probably should write more of it. This one got a really good response online. Maybe it's because the name was bizarre, but I think it was fun. It was fun to read. It was fun to write. And uh, for me, that's that's half of the enjoyment of putting something up online. I really like you reading it, but I also like writing it. And so Prince Nymphs and Cat Stevens was Wednesday's article. This week's recommendation on the Casting Across Fly Fishing podcast is to take your kids somewhere. Take your kids somewhere. What do I mean by that? Now, for a lot of people, fly fishing is kind of their break, In even if they have kids. And and I would say that about myself, uh, even though I, I absolutely love my kids, I adore my kids, they're a blessing, I'm so thankful for them. However, there's times where when I just kind of need some time off of work and off of normal life, where I go fishing by myself for a couple hours or even a day when I have that opportunity. But I also bring my kids along with me. It's a very important thing to do to let your family in to what you enjoy, especially if you have any sort of idea or plans on having them be your fishing partners as they grow older. So it doesn't have to be every time and it doesn't have to always just be fishing. And this is why I, I think about this. Uh, as I'm recording this, tomorrow morning is the final shot, stop of the fly fishing shows tour uh, this spring. Uh, what started back in January um, after a year hiatus from COVID is, or two year hiatus, I guess, uh, is back in action. And they even postponed the Massachusetts show because of the COVID restrictions that were in place back in January of 2022. So we were having this late spring show and my boys are pumped. They were bummed when we didn't get to go back in January, February, whenever it was. And uh, they're excited now that we get to go. So we're going and they have the people they want to talk to. They have the booths they want to see, the fly tying they want to check out. It's great. Would I like to go by myself? Yes. And guess what? I did go by myself. I went by myself back in, uh, in, in the wintertime in New Jersey, but now I'm taking my boys. So it doesn't mean you have to go take them to the grizzly uh, group of fly tires that you meet with. It doesn't mean that you have to take them every time you go fishing. Uh, but you know what? Take them to the fly shop. Take them to Bass Pro or Cabela's. Take them to the Fly Fishing Expo show. They are going to truly enjoy those things, especially if you buy them Chick-fil-A afterwards, which is what my plan for tomorrow is. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing podcast. Please subscribe to your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Mm-hmm.